This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. History is happening at the very moment that we are having this conversation. A country is defining itself. Inspiring patriotism is surging through the Ukrainian people. Whatever happens next, President Volodymyr Zelensky personifies patriotism, honor, courage, dedication. This is a teaching moment, a time to remind students that when John Hancock signed the Declaration of Independence, he and his fellow patriots understood then, like Ukrainian leaders know today, that we must all hang together or surely we will hang separately. Now, it's great that educators today can read the new book by Kevin Weddle, his absorbing account of the complete victory Saratoga and the American Revolution, which was just released, uh, ironically enough, by Oxford University Press. Kevin Weddle is a professor of history at the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which teaches senior military officers. And I'm very delighted to have Professor Weddle with me uh, on the education exchange. So Kevin, let me first compliment you on your amazing account of the events at the Battle of Saratoga. Uh, I have to admit that I read your book from beginning to end, and I don't do that very often. So uh, yeah, it's, it's really a, a great book, which I recommend to our listeners. But as I watch the events unfold in the Ukraine, I'm, I'm constantly reminded of your account of the British general, John Burgoyne. Do I have that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, marching from Montreal down the Hudson Valley. Do you see any connections between what happened back then 200 years ago and what's happening today before our very eyes? Well, first of all, uh, Paul, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, this is uh, really a, an honor to be on with you today. Um, and yes, uh, absolutely, I see some, some really interesting parallels uh, as we watch what's happening in, in uh, Ukraine. Uh, first and foremost, I think uh, the thing that really jumps out at me is the kind of the, the hubris and overconfidence of some of these senior leaders uh, on the Russian side. And of course, we're talking about Putin primarily there. And, and on the British side, not just General Burgoyne, but also uh, the king. Uh, King George III and Lord George Germain, who was Secretary of State for the Colonies for the Brits. Uh, and he was really the, the kind of the primary architect of British military strategy in 1777. I mean, they, they all of them, uh, Putin, Burgoyne, the King and Germain, all I think thought that the campaign that they had uh, uh, executed or, or put into to motion uh, was going to be a fairly easy operation, uh, that they were going to run over the enemy and the enemy would, would offer probably some token resistance, but they'd be able to, to uh, conduct their operations, uh, achieve their strategic, victory, uh, uh, strategic objectives, whatever they may be, uh, and then move on from there and, and basically get a, a quick, cheap victory. I think both of, both of these groups, uh, the British and, and the Russians, uh, thought that. And you know, early on, they, they just, they, they did get cheap victories. I mean, the, the Russians picked off the Crimea without a, without a shot. Right. And uh, Ticonderoga mm -hmm. fell with hardly a shot. So, right. 
They right. both and I think, an early, early battle. Right, and I think both of those early victories, Crimea and Ticonderoga, um, really fed into the, the overconfidence. Uh, and, and, you know, when you, when you have that overconfidence, you tend to underestimate the enemy. And I think both sides really underestimated the enemy. The, the Brits underestimated the Americans and how resilient the Americans would be at, because we see the Americans bounce back fairly quickly after Ticonderoga, after this horrific loss at Ticonderoga, which really shook uh, the Americans to their core when they lost this, what they, what they all thought was this impregnable um, uh, fortress. Uh, and on the, um, uh, you know, on the, uh, the Russian side, when they took Crimea, as you said, basically without firing a shot, without the West uh, imposing any penalty on Russia, virtually no penalty on Russia for seizing the Crimea so easily. I think they, they assumed that uh, uh, any incursion into Ukraine proper, the Donbass region or, or even the, the, the main part of Ukraine would also be met with, uh, with limited resistance from the West and from the Ukrainians themselves. Uh, and of course, both of those assumptions turned out uh, to be absolutely wrong, uh, and 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 that kind of goes to one of the you know one of the basics of of military strategy, and that the you know the enemy has a vote. The enemy is going to uh, probably do something you're not going to expect, and you have to be flexible enough to to deal with that. Uh, and the British and so far the Russians um, have shown that they're not all that flexible uh, in being able to deal with the unexpected. Uh, I think the other, um, another really big piece of this is logistics. Uh, and both sides, I think, the, and here we're talking about the Russians and the British, uh, both sides, the Russians and the British, went into this campaign, into, into this, for the British, the campaign of 1777, the Russians, this Ukrainian war, without proper logistics in place. I mean, I think it's very clear that uh, the Russians, again, thought this would be a quick and cheap war, so they didn't have to have this, this you know, robust logistics infrastructure behind them. Uh, they clearly have bungled logistics from start to finish, uh, and so they're having all sorts of problems there. And Burgoyne's, uh, his, his, his logistical connections got longer and longer the, the more right. he went down the valley, right? Right, right. And in fact, when when Burgoyne left Canada and started heading south, he even knew that he didn't have enough logistics support to conduct the entire campaign. Yet he launched that campaign anyway, mainly because he assumed that there'd be this, this um, uh, outpouring of loyalist support in New York that would be able to, to make up the logistical shortfall for him. Uh, as it turned out, there there was no big uh, uprising of loyalist support in the in New York as as Burgoyne headed south, and so consequently he runs into major logistical problems. And and as we've already mentioned, uh, Putin has had had just horrible logistics uh, issues from start to finish. Well, do you think the British underestimated the French uh, jumping into the war if things didn't go well? Did they? even think about that as a risk when they, before the campaign started? Yeah, I mean, they, that's always in the back of their mind. Uh, you 
see when you're looking at, you know, I, 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 I read a lot of the proceedings of parliament and, and things like that, and uh, all the discussions and debates that are going on in parliament. There, there is the, the, the worry in the back of their minds that the longer this war continues, uh, the greater the chance that the French will come in which is one of the reasons why they conduct the campaign of 1777, because they want to end the war right then. Let's finish the war right now, 1777. It's taken way too long. We should have ended it by now. Uh, so let's finish it in 1777. Uh, so yeah, that's in the back of their mind. I don't think, I, I don't think Burgoyne is really thinking about it, uh, but certainly the, the key decision makers in London uh, are thinking about it for sure. So, so uh, and, and how about the Russians? Did they underestimate the, the West? That might be some difference between the two situations. Yeah, I think, um, uh, I, I think they probably underestimated the West a little bit, although, um, you know, I would argue that the West did not handle this very well at all. Um, I think um, they failed in deterring uh, Putin. Um, I think there was a lot of wishful thinking going on in the West, uh, that he just wasn't going to do it, that he was just threatening and he wasn't actually going to execute that. I think we did a very poor job with deterrence by, by uh, basically telling him what we wouldn't do, what was off the table. I think that was a huge mistake. Um, you know, I, I don't think anybody expects American troops to be on the ground or American aircraft flying over Ukraine territory. But when you take all of those things off the table right off the bat, um, you have, you've lost all your deterrent value. Uh, so I think, I think we, really, we really bungled the deterrence piece early on. Now, after, now you know, to be fair, uh, once he actually executed the invasion, the West, I think, came together fairly, fairly nicely there. Uh, so, so in that case, you know, after the actual invasion began, but uh, the West should have been pulling on, you know, pulling, pulling their oars in one direction uh, prior to the invasion. So that I think they really missed an opportunity uh, to deter Putin uh, head on. There's one, there's one thing that hasn't happened yet, but you know, after Saratoga uh, takes place and the British suffer a terrible defeat. You might think, well, maybe they'll give up and, and negotiate something, but they don't. No, uh, they don't. It's no, no way can we get a compromise for another six years. So, right. But that make, that's got to be a discouraging possibility here that this thing could yeah. go on. Oh, yeah. I think, I think um, you know, he, Putin is going to be very much like George III. I mean, it was George III that mainly kind of kept the British fighting the American Revolution. I mean, I, the logical decision after Saratoga and the French enter the war would have been to, to just cut your losses at that point. They don't, they keep going. Uh, and that's mainly uh, uh, because of the King's insistence that they keep going. And I would be very surprised if Putin um, uh, backs off uh, almost no matter what the West does um, uh, anytime soon. I mean, I just don't see it happening. Um, and you did have political competition in Britain and a new party did come to power yeah, and they were the did. ones that finally reached the compromise. And it almost looks like, you know, one of the challenges that the West faces is that there's no real possibility that the government will fall. Right. 
Right. Absolutely. Um, I think some under some other um, some other simple similarities uh, are that the, the both the British and I think the Russians underestimated uh, Ukrainian resolve uh, and Ukrainian re uh, resilience, and I think the Brits underestimated American resolve and American resilience. Uh, you see it in both both these campaigns. I think they clearly. Uh, underestimated that. You see the Ukrainians, I mean, reports uh, starting, started to see reports yesterday that Ukrainians are actually starting to conduct counterattacks now, counteroffensive. Um, frankly, I'm, I'm surprised they're able to do that. Uh, I'm gratified that they're able to do that. That's great news. Um, and But the Americans did the same thing after the loss of Ticonderoga. After a few weeks, the Americans are able to start mounting counteroffensives, counterattacks, uh, that certainly the British didn't expect. And I'm sure the Russians are shocked that the Ukrainians are able to mount these counteroffensives uh, as well. So there you have, again, I think uh, an interesting parallel that um, both the, uh, the British and the Russians underestimated the enemy uh, resilience. And, and I think uh, there's, there's yet another uh, similarity. I think the, uh, the, the policymakers uh, from both the, the British and the Russian side and of course, when we're talking about the Russians, we're talking about Putin, uh, period. On the British side, we're talking the king and Germain and, and some of the key general officers. Um, I think they had a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding of what it was going to be like to campaign uh, in these countries, uh, in these areas. I think, uh, uh, for instance, uh, Germain on the British side really didn't understand that the challenges of campaigning in the American wilderness. And so he thought that these timelines would go very, very quickly, very, very smoothly. And that has not been, the, that was not the case in Saratoga. And I think Putin thought the exact same thing here going into Ukraine. And instead he's run into, um, and we've all seen it on TV, these, these uh, uh, all of his convoys are, are you know, road bound, they're strung out. Uh, it, once they go cross country, they, they're getting bogged down in the mud. Um, just, you know, the realities of campaigning uh, in the winter uh, in the Ukraine are, um, you know, are challenging. And I, and I think they probably underestimated how challenging it was going to be. Just like the British did uh, about campaigning in upstate New York. Well, you know, I, uh, one of the things that uh, has happened here is that uh, we have an inspiring leader emerging out of nowhere. Right. Uh, Zelensky has inspired the Ukrainians. He's inspired the West. Freedom and democracy have, have uh, you know, sort of been resurrected from the dead almost. So um, yeah. is this a teaching moment? Oh yeah, yeah. I th I think it is. I mean, it, it certainly shows how um, leaders can, you know, can surface. Uh, I mean, who would have thought that a former, you know, comedian sitcom star in Ukraine uh, would turn out to be very Churchillian uh, in in the way he's handling his leadership responsibilities in the middle of this war? Um, I, I'm sure most of us thought that that would not be the case. Um, he certainly didn't pull a, uh, you know, Afghanistan when the first time, you know, the things started going south in Afghanistan, what does the ruler, you know, the, what does the president do? He skips out. Um, 
you know, I think probably many of us thought that Zelensky would be doing the same thing, seeking, you know, seeking safe refuge someplace in, uh, you know, Poland or Germany or something like that. And he didn't. He's sticking there in, in Kiev and, and uh, showing the flag and being, as I said, very Churchillian in the way he's, he's approaching his, his leadership challenges. Uh, by the same token, you know, in, on the American side, in the Saratoga campaign, you had several leaders that really, really uh, were instrumental in making sure that the Americans would end up winning that campaign. First and foremost, to start with George Washington, uh, who did a brilliant job as commander in chief during, during 1777, even though he personally lost two battles, uh, the Battle of Germantown, the Battle of Brandywine, uh, he's still, but, but acting as commander in chief, uh, he, he made major, uh, major contributions to the American victory at Saratoga. And then at Saratoga itself, of course, you had the, you know, the dynamic combat leadership of a Benedict Arnold, uh, the, the sound management of the American Northern Army and Horatio Gates, uh, and and a, a, just a, a slew of, of younger, uh, more junior uh, officers, too, doing a fantastic job. Yeah, there. but an so, honest account of Saratoga has to admit that Benedict Arnold turns traitor and Horatio Gates is a coward subsequently. <laughs> so, I well, mean, are these leaders really? Yes. <laughs> Yes, but of course, you know, an honest historian can only look at what happened then, not what happens afterwards, because that, of course, can taint. And I think that's what's happened over the last 250 years since Saratoga is so many historians, you know, look at what they did afterwards and that taints how they view what, what they did at Saratoga. But we, you know, we can't do that. We have to look at what they did at Saratoga and what they did at Saratoga was really uh, uh, pretty remarkable uh, and and really excellent performances uh, by both of those leaders. Well, no, I think that's what your book does that other uh, uh, the literature had not done previously. You sort of re resurrected um, these two um, leaders uh, at this particular time by saying, "I don't care what they did later on. I'm going to talk about what they did at this moment in time, which is the only way you can evaluate people." <laughs> Yeah, and I and I'm not a big fan of Gates, believe me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I thought I had I definitely had to give him a fair shot. Well, so um, so but you say you should evaluate people in their time and at their moment, and and this is my problem with this new study that's come out uh, from the New York Times, which is a, basically a journalistic account. And journalists never follow that principle. They always use hindsight to evaluate people. Right, right. Uh, and they do here in the case where they talk about uh, uh, slaves arrive in 1619 and it's not the Declaration of Independence. That's the key moment in American history. I mean, how do you, how do you respond to their account? Right. Well, I, I think it's just, it's, um not to put too fine a point on it, it's just, it's 1619 project is garbage. I mean, it is just garbage from start to finish. Uh, it's, it's junk history. Uh, it's, um, um, you know, it's preaching to the, the far left crowd. Uh, and when you look, you know, I'm 
not a, a colonial American expert. You know, I'm a military historian. But when I look at the best historians the country has produced, people like Jim McPherson at Princeton, people like Gordon Woods at, um, at Brown, um, uh, Joe Ellis, I mean, all these brilliant, you know, multiple Bancroft prize winners and Pulitzer prize winners, um, all of them, all of them have judged the 1619 project as, as bunk. Uh, so, you know, I, you know, I, would I believe a Jim McPherson over um, the authors of the 1619 project any day of the week? Uh, and and uh, they have convinced me that uh, it's it's nothing but but as I said, junk history. You know, one of the claims made in that account is that uh, the the war itself, the American Revolution itself, was fought to protect slavery. To protect slavery. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's ridiculous. you see that in in the Battle of Saratoga in any way? Oh no no no, of course not. No, no. You, you know, all the, all the research I did in the primary sources, reading, you know, the, these leaders' diaries and their letters, uh, there's not even a hint of any of that in, in, the, in the primary literature. Um, it, it's just ridiculous. And I think it has done a, a huge amount of damage because it's being taught, you know, it's being taught in college, it's being taught in high school. Uh, and it's, it's, it's uh, just a shame. So, you know, there is a division of opinion about American history and there, you know, we know that there is no one history of our country because it's just a sure. big story to be told sure. that there are different perspectives you can bring to bear and people, historians do vary over, over time. So sure. how do we then teach about the history of slavery and segregation in our schools? What's the best way to approach it? Well, I think, I think we approach it in a straightforward, matter of fact way. Uh, we tell the, you know, we tell what happened, uh, warts and all, I've got absolutely no problem with that. Um, but we also have to put it in context. I mean, it, in the period where, uh, you know, Americans had, <clears throat> um, had slavery, so did most of the world. Uh, and we fought a, you know, uh, a civil war that in part ended slavery. Um, you know, the, the, the founders in their brilliance created a government um, under the Constitution that was self-correcting so that we could fix problems like slavery. Uh, and so, you know, the, yes, yes, absolutely, slavery is horrible. We need to teach it. We need to understand it. Uh, we need to understand the impact it had on the United States, on our economy, on our government, uh, on our, our population, on our citizenry. Um, but that doesn't that doesn't overshadow everything else uh, that makes America great. Uh, and, and to me, um, it's, it's a wart, uh, but it's not, it's not the entire being of the United States. It's not our foundation. It's not, it's not anything close to that. Uh, and we overcome it and we overcame slavery and we're continuing to overcome the, uh, um, you know, you can you can say the the uh, aftermath of slavery, um, but but again, our, our government is self-correcting, and we've 
we made those corrections along the way. So to me, it just shows the, the, the brilliance of the founders and the, the government and the country they put together. So you are now teaching senior military officers. Right. And you must be teaching people from all kinds of backgrounds. Right. Do they share that vision with you? Uh, I think most do. Um, I'd say the vast majority of them do. Um, of course, you wouldn't be in uniform for by the time we get them, uh, our students have been in uniform for 20 plus years. So presumably you wouldn't join the military and serve for 20 years if you didn't love your country, uh, warts and all. Uh, and I, so I think, yes, the vast majority of, of any students that I've had over the years here at the Army War College uh, feel the same way. Well, thank you, uh, Kevin, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion of your important new work. Well, thanks, Paul. I really, really enjoyed it. Well, I am Paul Peterson. Uh, Kevin Weddle is a professor of history at the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. His new book, The Complete Victory, he misspells it, I have to say, C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T, but I think he has a reason for doing that. The Complete Victory, uh, Saratoga and the American Revolution. It's an absorbing account of a key, perhaps a decisive battle of the American Revolution. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks, Paul. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education X website.